we're going to do that at the end. We're going to do that in, in a way. We're going to, you know, just take some time. And again, uh, get not just have someone pray, but we're going to pray to whatever level. And uh, we're going to leave time to do that. But I did want to take, the more I was thinking about this, because I think it's such an important thing to do. But I also think in some ways, like we did last week, praying uh, for the drought, it's pretty straightforward. There's no controversy there. It's a little different. We should be praying, but there's a lot of white noise. I mean, as soon as, 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 soon as we start talking politics or prime ministers or the, in church, all it's guaranteed. A bunch of you, if not all, have just gone, oh! Some of you have sort of popcorn. This will be interesting. I wonder where we're going here. Um, so I do actually, because I feel it's so important and so right for us to be praying about this stuff, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about how we pray. Because I think there is, look, if I just don't, I think in my life there's been ways in which I've prayed about things sort of on the national agenda. Um, I, I think there's good ways to do it and not so good ways to do it. And particularly when we pray together. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, about how we can pray. Uh, and it's also a good opportunity, I guess, again, um, sort of early on in, in, in my role here in the new season of church, to maybe talk a little just more about how we engage even more broadly in things on the national agenda, you know, the, the big issues and, and the small issues. Um, I'm actually going to play a clip in a, in a moment uh, right now, Calvin, if you can uh, get that ready. A guy called Tim Keller. Who's heard of Tim Keller before? Okay, you've heard of Tim Keller. So Tim Keller is, for those who haven't, he's a, a, a pastor and an author, a sort of a, I'd almost call him sort of like a public intellectual. He's got a great mind. And he's, uh, he speaks um, really well into things that are qu- kind of quite complex. He's been an author. He's from the, uh, what's called the, what we often refer to as the reformed sort of stream of Christianity. Um, but about 15 years ago, he was one of the sort of first uh, leaders of note to talk about this thing, maybe even a bit longer than that, to talk about this thing called the missional church. Who's heard that phrase before? Missional church. It's, it's a, you know, don't get too hung up in the, in the language, but the idea of a missional church, I've used the, the phrase a little bit before too, is a church that believes that God's doing something in the world. God has a mission. We've talked about that. I think the best place to go to get that in a nutshell is Luke 4. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago where Jesus announces that kind of like his inaugural speech. He says, this is what I'm here to do. Remember, it's, uh, give sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, to declare the year of the Lord's favour. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's basically saying, this is what I'm up to because this is what God's up to. He then says at the end of his talk, I'm now commissioning you to go and be about the same thing. And so the idea of the, this discussion started amongst churches that churches who um, probably recognised a bit of self-awareness to say sometimes in churches we can put other things at the, mi- at the middle. Good things, but maybe... Everything suffers when the mission of God is not central. And Tim Keller was one of those voices. And here he's talking about, uh, I guess, characteristics of a missional church. And he says some really interesting things about the kind of things you hear and talk about in church and may not. Let's take a look because he explains it really well. So just a few minutes looking at Tim Keller. Thanks. A missional church, for example, is uh, is characterized by a great deal of respect for 
uh, people who don't believe. In other words, a missional church understands what it's like not to believe. And that permeates everything, every meeting. We understand what it's like not to believe. Uh, We understand uh, the problems people have with the church. We understand the problems people have with the way life goes. We understand people who wonder about suffering. They wonder about hypocrisy in the church. They wonder about injustice. So because we understand that, uh, the way the preaching goes, the way uh, uh, conversations happen in small groups, non-Christians can be there and not be, A, offended by all, by all the, the cracks about non-Christians or not offended by statements about homosexuality, statements about other religions. Uh, they're not offended, and secondly, they're not totally confused. Because instead of just using evangelical subcultural jargon, we're always, in all of our conversations, everything from the education to the worship service to the preaching, we're always connecting the gospel to baseline cultural narratives, problems, hopes, aspirations. When, when non-Christians come in, they see that we inhabit the same world. We read the same magazines. We're struggling with the same issues in the neighborhood. They, they, they see that we're really being Christians in the same um, world that they live. And that has to... I, there's an awful lot of evangelical churches where a non-Christian comes in, they can't understand the jargon. They, they, they see an enormous us-them mentality. You know, there's, there's us good people and there's you bad people. The, uh, all of the things that are, are, that are obsessing the Christians that they talk about are not the issues in the neighborhood. They're not the issues in the... the Christians are not concerned about the common good. They're really just concerned about their tribe. So when a non-Christian comes in and they, hears all, they hear all this talk, they're confused or offended and they're out. That's not a missional church. See, that's, that's very different than just an evangelistic uh, approach. Or let me put it one more way. Uh, one of our church planters from here who was trained here started a church in Berlin. Just got started. It's doing quite well. Downtown Berlin, young, secular people, almost all new Christians, single people right in the heart of Berlin. And he came back and gave us a little uh, uh, a video of a, a girl, who had be- a young woman who had become a Christian. And he translated, it was in German. But what, what struck me was she, she told the story how she became a Christian. She got to know Christian, which is the name of the pastor. And he talked to her about Christianity and gave her a book. And as she read the book, she came back and she said, you can't be a Christian, you're just like me. You've read the same things. You're concerned about the city. You're concerned about all... You're just like... You can't be a Christian. You're just like me. Christians aren't like me. And then she said, but then I realized you are a Christian and you're just like me, so maybe I could be a Christian. Now, in other words, they, she saw that he was... He had similar sensibilities. He was truly German. He was truly... He was young. He was hip, actually. But he was also concerned about the same problems she was in the world, and she, he was addressing them from a Christ, with Christian resources. And I think an awful lot of non-Christians listen to Christians talking about the problems of the world, and they're different, a whole different set of problems. They don't hear Christians concerned about the same problems they're concerned with. When non-Christians see Christians addressing the common good and the problems that we all face as co-citizens in the world, Using Christian resources, therefore, maybe the people won't agree with us, but at least they see that, we're, that we have the same heart. Then they can identify. They say, well, you, maybe I could be a Christian too. 
But honestly, I think most non-Christians, when they see how, what, what Christians are obsessed with, they, they can't even begin to relate to them. So I reckon it just take the gain way down on that, mate. Thanks. Um, so a couple of things there. I reckon there's a way of listening to that that possibly some of you maybe straight away zeroed in on uh, language like um, or phrases like not be offended. And you've gone, hang on, gospel. Jesus says the gospel will be offense. Yes, the gospel will be offense, not you. There's a lot of people walking around who think that because Jesus said the gospel, the values of the gospel that are so contrary to the values of the world, will, and that la- the language in the original, it, it, it will confront people with the difference. Not, so some people take that and think, I can be as offensive as I want. That's not true. It's not, it's not the way of Jesus at all. It's not your job to be offensive. It's pr- to pr- live out a life that is so confronting and so challenging. Now, again, it's, it's really relevant. I mentioned that uh, Tim Keller's a reform because he is conservative. In, in some areas, he's as conservative in terms of his view of all of the hot-button Christian issues as anyone. You know, sanctity of life and marriage and things like that. So he's not talking about not having convictions. He is talking about the way in which we live that out in our world. And uh, again, he's, he um, passed, planted a church called Redeemer in the middle of New York. So this is not a guy, have a look at him, he looks like your accountant, doesn't he? He's not wearing a leather jacket and kind of going the whole way of being relevant. No, no, he's, he is a reformed, Bible-believing, brilliant Bible teacher, if you've read his books. What he is saying is that when people walk in each week, what, and, and again, he's seen this, living this out in New York, you know, probably one of the most secular cities in the world, he's saying it's really weird to people who aren't in churches. It's like they've walked into a different world that we don't live in the outside world, or even worse, we're not concerned. And that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus was constantly speaking about that, not just at this sort of big level, but about what was happening in his day. And so, you know, it's, it's this kind of thinking where it's right that if there's a drought going on, we don't come and say a whole lot of spiritual platitudes about, you know, God will give us water that we won't quench for in heaven. Well, big big deal. Well, not, I mean, it's a big deal. That's a big deal. But here and now, there's people whose livelihoods are at risk. Our economy's at risk. Does God care about that? Absolutely. To pretend if we carry on and have this super spiritual approach, which is actually not really spiritual at all. It's deeply unspiritual, I would say. It's deeply unlike the, the Jesus of the of uh, of the Gospels. So similarly, this week we've had this huge, significant thing going on um, in our palm. It would be weird, would it not, if we came in and kind of said, "Well, actually, God's." We, I could find you all sorts of scriptures about th- that would indicate that we shouldn't be worried about that. And I actually, I actually was raised. Maybe you can recognise this. I was sort of raised in a culture that kind of said, oh, politics is so corrupt and it's so broken, it's so dirty, what I need to do is to be holy is to come apart. It's like we just shouldn't talk about it because it's so dirty and so corrupt and so broken. We need to almost keep our distance lest, lest we get tainted. Anyone recognize, I mean, I'm over-exaggerating. Anyone sort of recognize that view? Here's what Jesus does. Because actually the Bible talks about lots of things that are clean and unclean. 
lots of things that, that were unclean in, in the Old Testament that Jesus comes along and just gets up close and puts his arms around literally people. Think of the leper. Think of the woman at the well. This side of the cross, it's not, oh, something's unclean. If you're a follower of God, don't touch it lest you become unclean. This side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, when the believer in Jesus' name touches something in God's name, it becomes clean. That's our role, is to sanctify, is to redeem. So there's so many reasons why we need to lean into what's happening in our nation. Um, There's so many reasons that we should be praying for our Prime Minister. I mean, in Timothy, uh, Paul instructs Timothy and says, it's really plain, he says, you just should be praying. Pray for those in authority over you. So first of all, there's this base level biblical commandment. Just do it. Just pray. It's right that you pray. And within that, there's an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. So anyone in a position of power, regardless of who you voted for or didn't vote for, what you believe or didn't, do what, what your convictions are, in the fullness of the sovereignty of God, and we probably will only get a sense of this on the other side of eternity, to see what God hasn't allowed to happen. So it's not saying that whoever is in any position of authority, your boss or your principal at school or... I'm not saying that they're necessarily God's person for the role, but there's a sense in which in God's sovereignty, if they're there, then God has allowed it. Um, and, and, you know, certainly in a context like Australia, we should take that passage in Timothy for what it says. Beyond that, beyond that, there is... I mean, I, I've been listening. I'm sure you have too. It's, it's been impossible to es- escape the um, sense of disappointment, frustration, anger, cynicism. It's all pretty valid, to be honest. I feel like it's possible to escape it because I feel it. Um, And so it's so easy. It's so easy because it feels like that our political system keeps presenting us with reasons to, again, just kind of go retreat to a bit of a Christian ghetto and just put all our hope in the, the other side of eternity. It'll all get resolved. It's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card, my salvation in my back pocket. Let's just come and hang on. Get in a lifeboat and just hang on. And Jesus is coming back. Oh, boy. Now, I I say that with cynicism, but, boy, the temptation to do that, (laughs) to live that way. I get the draw of that approach to life, particularly this week. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to lean in and to respond. So there's so many good reasons for us to be praying. Now, the other really good reason that I think we should be praying whenever, I would like to think as a church that we would pray whenever there's been particularly a position like a Prime Minister, a new Prime Minister, who they are, what side of politics, shouldn't matter. We should pray. feels like we might be doing that every second week at the moment if I make that commitment, but anyway, we might do... But I think it's right that we do that. But there is a, a reason that we should pray for this man as well. Because he's a believer. He's a brother in Christ. Now, straight away, I feel, I feel what you're doing there. Hang on a second. Whoa, I felt that. Um, because uh, I think we've got this low level. It's great, isn't it? Oh, rain, rain, rain. Um, we've got this sort of low-level white noise of, oh, gee, whenever a politician kind of trumpets some sort of identity, are they just playing identity politics? I'm one of your tribe. You know, they, is he just playing that for votes? I'm a conservative and I'm a, I'm a Christian. We all get a bit nervous about that. I understand that. 
added to that, uh, Mr. Morrison has actually been the immigration minister during a during a time and a policy that's been upheld by both sides of government that many people, and I'm one, who feels that whilst security absolutely is an issue, the way in which we've enforced that, lots of people, and you would have heard them, would, would question how that how he can resolve that or anyone could resolve, uh, sort of resolve detaining particularly children. That's a big issue. Now, let's not pretend that that's not there. So there's all of these, so again, this white noise. It's like, how do we pray? How do we pray when there, all this stuff's going on? Um, I want to suggest when we get to the part in which we're going to pray, not just for our Prime Minister, but for our nation, if we do it right, here's a challenge. Here's a, here's a great little sort of criteria I do for myself, but I think for all of us, that we, we would be able to pray and engage our hearts and faith in a way that actually if we're praying in a group, it would be almost impossible for the person next to us to be able to, to, be able to figure out who we voted for last election or who we voted for next election. There is a way in which we can pray, and you're going to hear me use the word elevate. We need to elevate above party politics. We need to be concerned for our nation, and this is, again, it's part of what it is to be the church, to recognize that actually that is a part of the world we live in. To not talk about it would feel like we're, I don't know, some sort of weird Christian cult, or it's real, it's going on. But there's also a way in which we can recognize and affirm that God has an agenda. The kingdom agenda is even above and beyond, but through the politics of the day. So that's one of the things I'm going to encourage, that you would pray in a way that wouldn't let people know whether you think he should be Prime Minister or not, who you voted for or who you now are going to vote for. I think it's entirely possible to do that. What's more, and this is really on my heart, because I think that a church that prays like that is a church that lives like that. And again, this Elevate thing, we can either be drawn into this incredibly divisive, incredibly polarised, increasingly toxic language and culture around our everything. Politics, it's around economics, it's around... Increasingly polarised. We shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus said it's going to be like there's going to be wheat and there's going to be tears. It's going to grow at the same time, but it's going to be polarised. We can get drawn into that and live that way and speak that way as a church or we can again elevate above that be the kind of church that is says we don't it doesn't matter where you've come for or who you voted for or who you're going to vote for you can you can be a part of us that's that's some of what tim keller was saying there at the start there i um i might have told i don't know if i told this story but i um when we were in Geelong, uh, I noticed there was a bunch of guys kind of around my age in the church. I kept hearing these stories, a bunch of guys who were about my age in the church who were a part of the church, had been a part of the church, but sort of a bit disaffected, a bit sort of there, but not really there or just not there at all. Really good people, genuine, you know, love the Lord, but just their faith on really low burn. And I thought, this is not good. I mean, I know it would never happen at this church. It doesn't happen at most other churches. only that church. Very uncommon for men in their mid-40s to be not passionate about church. But anyway, 
just a Geelong thing, okay? But I kind of felt like uh, there's a bit of a, I felt the Lord was sort of putting this bit of a project. So I went around and sort of just spent time and tried to gather these guys and we created a life group of all of these guys who came together and met. And over the next sort of four or five years, that group of guys became my inner circle. Uh, so it was fantastic. I mean, most of them came in hating the church and really very, very, not hating the church, that's too strong. Well, one or two cases, maybe. Um, but really, well, what's all this about? But anyway, as we journeyed and built relationship, it came out, I didn't really know too much of these backgrounds. Part of our journey was actually getting people to share their background. And as it uh, came out, it turns out one of the guys, um, in, was, he was an environmental scientist, really passionate um, about the environment. And he'd actually run for the Greens in the, the local election uh, three times and not made it uh, either time, but was a member of the, the uh, member of the Greens. Now, some of you have gone, I thought you said he was a Christian. Let me tell you, this guy, Jewish background, and uh, he took us as a, a, a one year as, as men and then the next year with all of our families where he did the full Passover meal. And it was one of the most profound spiritual experiences. We went to the home, did the, like it takes about four hours if ever you've done it properly. Has anyone done a full Passover where you, you, like you really have a feast? You don't just pretend with, you know, little bits of wafer. Full feast. And this guy had been converted, you know, had come to Jesus as a Jew. And so all of his faith just came alive. So this guy, if he's not a believer, none of you are. None of us are. Uh, amazing guy. Happened to be a part because he was passionate about the environment felt like the greens was the best way so so he was running for green we then turned out a few weeks later another guy shared his story he had actually run for election in the state election for a party i don't know if it's up here but it's called catch the fire now it, it to whatever you thought how far left the greens are catch the fire is as that far right if not more politically so here are these two guys in my life group so about 15 minutes, half an hour before when they turned up, half an hour, these guys would go hammer and tong at each other. But we just walked together and, you know, they, they listened and argued and, you know, it was all done respectfully. Two or three years down the track, in that hour or so in between, they prayed for each other's families. They cried when one of them got laid off. Then the other guy was the first guy around to support. They, they prayed together in tears one vivid memory of them holding each other praying together for their unsaved children that is the church that's the church that an increasingly toxic and polarized and cynical world needs us to be the unity that exists in diversity i don't think they they fundamentally changed their political views they they were influenced they probably had greater respect but that's what we can be, folks. That's who Jesus needs us to be. But to do that, we've got to elevate. We've got to not do that. Oh, we can't. We don't even want to talk about it. We've got to not do that approach where it's so unclean and so dirty we can't even engage. We also can't become so much a part of the polarized sort of view where our sense of identity is the fact that we are a insert political persuasion here, Christian or this Christian. That's tribalism. It's not the way of the kingdom. So we've got a, we've got a, um, a guy who 
uh, this time tomorrow. Do you remember how we, we did a couple of weeks ago with Ben? We got him up and we, we got him to share what he's going to be doing this time tomorrow. The work, Ben Hart, he's a valuer. And that's something I want to do more and more of because I think that's something a missional church does is recognize tomorrow when you walk out, you're all going into context. I think it was great when Chris O preached and told us about what, what the opportunities and the challenges she has in the school place. All of you have got stories like that. We need to hear it. We need to value it. And we need to come around and pray and say, hey, when you go in tomorrow, you go, with, you go on behalf of us and you go with our blessing, commissioning people into their everyday existence, expecting that God's going to outwork things, expecting that God's going to give them the resources and, and the empowerment of the Spirit to meet the challenges of whatever's in your life head on. Well, this time tomorrow, this bloke's got a pretty difficult job. And I reckon he'd probably, again, move aside the cynicism. I think he's, everything I've read, he sounds very genuine in his faith, and I actually know some people who know him well, who absolutely vouch for the authenticity of his faith. Move aside his political, his policies, things that you might disagree. He's a brother who tomorrow walks into the, I reckon the hardest job. I reckon my job's pretty tough at times. I wouldn't give it up for quids for that. So he's going to walk in, and he's going to walk in off the back of, he also made a, um, this is also what, what grabs me, and I, I think I've mentioned before that when we're not sure what to pray, pray scripture. And uh, I'm really I'm fascinated by if some of you might have read his first speech that he gave to Parliament. Fascinating speech. And he said this. This is his first speech, so it's part of Hansard Public Record. From my faith, I derive the values of loving kindness, justice and righteousness, to act with compassion and kindness, acknowledging our common humanity and to consider the welfare of others, to fight for a fair go for everyone to fulfill their human potential and to remove whatever unjust obstacles stand in their way, including diminishing their personal responsibility for their own well-being. He's a conservative. And to do what is right, to respect the rule of law, the sanctity of human life, and the moral integrity of marriage and family. We must recognize an unchanging and absolute standard of what is good and what is evil. Now, I actually reckon, maybe for a couple of phrases, I think everyone who is a believer could probably place their own political aspirations within that framework I think that's a biblical framework there largely and, and because we know what side of politics we, we probably assume we know what he's meaning by those things but I think as an aspiration if that's what his first speech he wants to be I think we should be praying to uphold that again move aside that you know I have to admit just being honest someone who's been passionate about the um, the refugee um, situation in our country for a long time and some of you remember when years and years ago we uh, were running a, ref- run a refugee assistance program here that Christy was actually coordinated and a lot of you were involved in. We've got the photos. Some of those people out there on the photos in the, um, in the kitchen there, actually Christy drew those. Some of those people lived in our home. So I'm passionate about that. I have some questions, more than, you know, I, I, more, I've quite a few questions about the way in which we're doing that. However, there's a choice that I can make here and go, he doesn't believe that. He says he's a Christian. He says that, but he doesn't. I could go that route or I could elevate and say, man, it must be really difficult to outwork that in the context and the role that he's got. And he needs my prayer. And I want to pray. I want people who think that's true and want to live by that. I will do whatever I can to affirm that rather than to talk it down. We can elevate. And I've been really concerned and actually dismayed at the commentary by the church, by 
Christians who have every reason to believe and accept that this is a, a brother in Christ for the way that they would just so easily go the route of cynicism. Accountability, yes. That comes with a job. I don't think he'd shirk, shirk that. Responsibility, yes. Living that out, yes. But even more reason for us to lean into praying for them. He actually, in that speech, he also quoted from Jeremiah 9. Again, this is part of Parliament Record. But for those who wish to boast, should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love, who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things, and that I delight in these things, I, the Lord, have spoken. I think that's a, of all of the scriptures that he could go and reach for, I think it's a pretty powerful one and a pretty timely one. Again, my prayer, my prayer is to pray that over our Prime Minister, to pray that, to affirm that. For whatever inspired him by the Spirit to, to reach for that as his, in his sort of Luke 4 inauguration speech, he's, he's reached for this. And so to reaffirm that. And so I want to pray that over. And I encourage you, if, there's, you're, struck, if you're stuck on what to pray, if your political ideology so entrenches you to be able to pray any good thing, well, have a good hard look at yourself. But also, just pray this then. Just pray that, because that's Scripture. It reminds me, we've been doing this, um, oh, actually, it reminds me of this, this one here. It's actually all through the Old Testament, this call for righteousness and justice. And I, th- I think this is another good thing. When we're praying, and again, elevating above party politics, but praying for our nation at this time, th- there's the theme of righteousness and justice and the flip side wickedness is one of the mega themes through scripture it's really strong particularly in the prophets and in psalms which we've been looking at so amos i actually uh, flashed this one amos i love amos because um he um he was actually a very reluctant prophet he actually doesn't describe himself as a prophet he said i'm not really a prophet but it's it he goes, but there's something that needs to be said. It's, it's, it's a sense in which there's something so strongly that needs to be said to our nation that I'm going to have to be a prophet. But he's a reluctant prophet. I think that's a great little thing there. Anyone who sort of reaches for the tag of those things, I'd be more like Amos, where you're reluctant, but there's something that's so important that needs to be said. And that's Amos. And didn't he let loose? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. He's talking to the people of God here. As, as all the prophets the majority of the prophets in scripture spoke to the people of God I hate I despise your religious festivals your assemblies are a stench to me even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings I will not accept them though you bring choice fellowship offerings I will have no regard this is Amos speaking on behalf of God by the way so this is kind of God through Amos away with the noise of your songs I will not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll on like a river Righteousness like a never failing stream. Awkward. <laughs> you can imagine Amos didn't get invited to too many conferences, too many. Uh... But here again, we've got justice and righteousness. And like I said, it's such a big theme. And I think when we are praying, if we're not sure, if we want to elevate above the politics of the day, then I think actually we go to justice and righteousness. Because that it seems to be where the prophets went to all the time when they wanted to call God's people back to what they should be doing. We want to pray in our leaders. It's righteousness and justice. We've been looking at um, at Psalm. Psalm ten is another cracker. Again, you can if 
you're not sure what to pray, open some of this, find a verse that resonates and pray this into our nation. Pray it into our political leaders. Pray it into anyone in positions of authority over you and responsibility. And I reckon this just this is uh, thousands of years old, but it feels like it was written yesterday to me in terms of the emotional resonance. Why are you so far away, O oh Lord? Why do you hide yourself when we are in trouble? The wicked are proud and persecute the poor. Catch them in the traps they have made. The wicked are proud of their evil desires. Isn't that so true of that age? People just trumping. That was a faux pas. That was Freudian. People just, you know, kind of celebrating their, the fact that they greed and, and, you know, their power. The wicked are proud of their evil desires, the greedy curse and reject the Lord. The wicked don't care about the Lord. In their pride, they think that God doesn't matter. The wicked succeed in everything. Oh, isn't that, doesn't it feel like that? Doesn't it feel like that's true? Again, here we've got the honesty of the Psalms where it's, God's never afraid of how we feel. The psalmist starts from where, you know, from where, where they're at, what they're seeing. They can't understand God's judgment. They sneer at their enemies. They say to themselves, we will never fail. We will never be in trouble. Their speech is filled with curses, lies, threats, and are quick to speak hateful, to speak hateful evil words. Verse 10, the helpless victims lie crushed. Brute strength has defeated them. The wicked say to themselves, God doesn't care. He has closed his eyes and he will never see, see me. O oh Lord, punish those wicked people. Remember those who, who are suffering. But, but you do see. You take notice of troubling and suffering and are always ready to help. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have always helped the, ne- helped the needy. You listen, O oh Lord, to the prayers of the lowly. You will give them courage. You will hear the cries of the oppressed and the orphans. You will judge them in their favour so that mortal men may cause terror no more. So much to pray through that. So much you can just grab and map straight onto where we're at. And just very quickly, we're going we're gonna to pray in a, in a moment. Like I said, it's almost righteousness and justice are words that largely you can use interchangeably in Scripture. It's a, it's a theological theme that's kind of connected. Righteousness and justice. God, particularly in talking about God. God's righteousness and justice. The flip side of that coin, the opposite of that is wickedness. Now, particularly that word wickedness, it's easy for us, and again, this is probably, if I can just name this for me, growing up in church, I kind of absorbed this idea that wickedness spoke to all of the personal individual choices that people make, that I would make, um, about my personal morality. So what is wicked? Um, drinking is wicked. Drinking, depending on what church you're in, drinking or drinking to excess. Smoking is wicked. Um, uh, you know, lustful thoughts is wicked. This is, this is what I sort of, you grow up thinking that it's, it's in this, if you're going to use the word wicked, it's personal, the individual realm. Wicked people would be people who make these personal choices um, about their personal morality. And there's a sense in which there's a truth to that, but if we're looking at the biblical idea of, of wickedness, and it's, and it's this word, Roshaw, Roshaw. How do you say that, Josh? Good, okay, great. A disregard for justice, righteousness, truth, honor, virtue, evil in thought and life, depravity, sinfulness, criminality. See how that's just elevated. There, our, our personal choice, our personal morality is absolutely a part of that. But actually in Scripture... 
when the prophets or the psalmists are writing, they're actually talking about groups of people. They're, they're much bigger. They're, they're beyond that. The, the idea of just make the right choices. Just make the right personal choices and you won't be wicked. This is important when we pray, particularly into the, the political realm, and we're going to use and pray scripture. There's a temptation to kind of go, Lord, may we have people who will, have, who will legislate against wickedness and will affirm my moral choices. And if they do that, we'll all be fine. And leave it. A, and so it's like the, the best thing that our, our politicians and lawmakers and people in power could do is to just get all of the, the sort of the personal moral wickedness out. But actually, as Chris reminded us so well last week, there is systemic evil. The fact that actually right now that there are organizations that are profiteering off that are boosting their profits off drought because they know that they can charge cheaper prices. That's systemic evil. That's, that's not just one person making a bad choice to get drunk. That's all sorts of people who are vulnerable, who are weak, who have been taken advantage. So when you read it in Scripture, it's far more likely that the prophets are talking at that scale. It, of course it applies to us. Of course. But it's a lot easier for us to say, which is just to kind of keep it against about those other bad people. You understand what I'm saying here? So what I'm trying to do is say, let's elevate this. Let's elevate. I, th- I think that's the spirit behind what Scott Morrison was, when he was quoting and going into, I think that's what he saw, the opportunity to do something on a, on a big scale. So um, you ready to pray? You reckon you can pray without the person next to you going, oh, yeah, okay, live nat, oh, labor. You reckon you can do that? Oh, it's a challenge. There's a few nods there. We'll see how we go. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get the I'm going to get the worship team to come up. Um, feel free to not pray out loud. Feel free to not pray out loud. Feel, feel, what we're going to do is just actually sing uh, because we want to be in a worshipful state. We want to be in a worshipful place. So we're going to sing um, just that reprise: "Chains be broken, lives be healed." chains be broken lives. We're just going to sing that. We'll go through that three times maybe. And then the band will keep playing because we want to, again, we want to pray in a worshipful posture. Feel free to turn around to people next to you, two or three, and pray. I might leave that, that psalm up there or um, flick through some of those psalms, maybe flick through the words of, that Scott Morrison. So if, pray for Scott Morrison, pray for his family, and see if you can elevate, pray for our nation justice and mercy justice and righteousness would flow like a river Uh, so we're going to do that and then after we pray for a while we're going to come back and we're going to just finish in kind of you know after about five ten minutes or so we're going to sing um, you'll come it's a bit like a benediction again it's elevating after we pray for our nation we're going to say lord come let your glory fall reveal yourself not in a kind of a oh this is all too busy god just come and fix it all in a sense in which we believe that as God presences himself through his people, through his church, the fullness of who he is is made available. All good? You can do that? Okay, great. Thanks, John. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website www.com
events at 81 Wiener Parade Alderney every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Please feel free to join us. We hope you have been encouraged by this message.